Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Welcome to a very special episode as we celebrate the life and legacy of John Denver, who passed away 26 years ago today in a plane crash in Monterey Bay, California. And while the singer is silent, there still is the truth of the songs. Holdreds are really something else. They really accompany John's stratospheric tenor voice, that's for sure. So 26 years ago today, the world lost one of its most beloved entertainers, um, and I lost a friend, and uh, of course, uh, the Denver family lost a father and a brother. And the guy that was born, Henry John Dutchendorf Jr., back in 1943, uh, would go on to become one of the most beloved and best-selling entertainers in the history of music. If you'd have told me in 1974 when I went over to my friend Michelle's house, who I worked with at Dunkin' Donuts, to listen to an album called Back Home Again, that one day the guy that was singing on that vinyl album, I'll never forget it, we're sitting on her front porch on a summer evening. Man, there are just some memories that stay with me. Anyway, if you'd have told me one day that this guy would invite me to speak at an international symposium, that we'd become friends, that he would support my work, that he would more importantly, see something in me that I could not see in myself, I would have said, what are you smoking? Because there was no way to know that back in the day. And yet all of those things came about for me. And I don't know how they happened. I'm just glad that they did. It's near impossible to track the connect the dots that bring out some incredible things in our lives. And John's friendship in mine is just one of those. I have many friends in my life that I'm thinking, Randy Hunley's another example. How does this happen? 
Uh, and then there are people that I've stayed in touch with for decades, and you know, there's that piece. But John in particular had such a profound effect on me because he basically gave me my career. He opened the doors to something in me that I didn't know needed to be open. And it goes back to 1989 was the first time that I had actually met him. He was in Chicago for an event called Higher Ground. It was not a concert. It was a it was an evening of entertainment interspersed with music and messages about humanity and what we can do to make a difference in the world. That's what he was all about. All of his songs, except maybe for some of the love songs, but maybe even some of those are all about up in the game, about living life at a different level and, and what's possible for us, not what's impossible for us. And so he was doing this event at the Chicago Theater. I was on the advanced media team, even though I had no idea what the hell I was doing. But I made a phone call to Bill Curtis, who at the time was the CBS newsman here in Chicago with uh, Walter Jacobson. And I just had this nudge to call Bill. I left a voicemail at his desk, told him what was going on. It would be great if he could come and cover it, if at all possible. So the next night, we get to the Chicago theaters, probably five, 6,000 people showed up. Now, you got to remember, this is not a concert. This isn't like he was out, you know, filling a 20,000-seat auditorium. This was very different. And getting people to come and hear him or hear anybody, quite frankly, talk about what was going on in the world is not the same as somebody coming out to buy a ticket for an evening of entertainment. So it was a little bit of a difficult sell. Sure enough, as I'm coming down the third row from the left side aisle, here comes Bill Curtis in the third row from the right side aisle. We met directly in the middle and sat down and we watched Denver go through his paces and talk about what he thought we could all do to make the world a little bit better place. And then he sang a few songs to underscore that. And afterwards, there was a like a kind of a reception, and uh, I remember, and it just just came back. Uh, my highly significant other and I were at the Eddie Izzard show last week at the Chicago Theater, and Eddie Izzard's a little, it maybe he looks a little different than Denver, of course, but is he's still got the same "come on, we can have a better life" kind of thing. But I walked into the Chicago Theater, and every time I go in there, I take a look up to the corner, and go, "Anybody still up there?" Because that's where we're all gathered. I have this anchor of being in that place with these guys. Bill Curtis and I have been friends ever since. We've done a lot of work together, a lot of projects together. The Earth Matters with Bill Curtis series, I'm so very proud of. We did 300 episodes of that, which is all about the environment. And so in many ways, it's tied right back to our friendship, uh, our mutual and shared friendship with John. So that was in 1989. In 1991, I was working the third shift at a hotel as security because it's just right for a guy like me. And I'd be up all night walking and throwing out drunks and stuff. You know, good, good, good times. And uh, I remember getting ready to go to work, like 10, 30, quarter to 11. And the TV was on in the living room. And Jay Leno was doing The Tonight Show back then. And he goes on to make this big thing. Well, you all know my next guest. And an you know, internationally known singer, songwriter, da-da-da. And on December 2nd, he'll be at the Wang Center in Boston, John Denver, and John walks out, launches into this song, which you're going to hear in a little bit, called Eagles and Horses, backed up by the fantastic Conrad Reader. And as soon as Jay Leno said that, something clicked in my head and said, I have to be there in Boston. Made zero sense, but there's a lot of things in my life that don't make any sense. Somewhere this audacity uh, gene in me had popped up over time, and there wasn't anything I didn't think I was supposed to do or could do uh, when I was called to do it. And I knew this was something I had to go do. So... I bought a ticket the next day on Continental Airlines. I think it was a hundred bucks round trip when Continental Airlines was still in existence. I flew to Boston. I found Chris O'Connor in the phone book at a hotel. Chris is John's road manager at the time. 
we knew each other a little bit from 1989. And um, he asked if I had a ticket to the concert. I said, no, I just flew here totally on a whim. Well, what do you want to talk about? I'm not really sure. But I think he was kind of used to stuff like that with, with Denver because there's, there was a an energy about the guy that I think just brought out the sixth insatiable sense in people. Like there's there's something I'm supposed to do, but I'm not sure what it is. And in many ways, I think his music was the catalyst to get people to do things they didn't think they were possibly able to do before that. So that's a whole other show. It's a deep dive into the Tao of music, really. He said, well, you can come to the whole, you know, to the event. It's at the Wang Center. It's beautiful there. And, you know, he'll have about 20 minutes ahead of time before the show. You guys can talk. I said, fantastic. I had a great evening. Went over, had some lobster for dinner. I walked the Boston Commons in the snow. It was like courier knives. And then it started snowing really heavy. And I got to the Wang Center and I sat there with the security guy talking for a good half hour and there's no Denver and nobody else. And pretty soon they come walking in covered in snow. There was a delay because of the weather. And Denver looks at me, goes, what are, you, what are you doing here? This isn't Chicago. And I, I didn't have an answer for him. Well, our time together had evaporated. And Chris says, look, I, I, I'll give you the ticket, but you know, there's just no way we can pull it off. I'm like, yeah, whatever. So I'm thinking I got my wires crossed. What the hell am I doing here? So I go downstairs. He parks me in the, uh, like a green room down in the basement of the, the theater. And there's, I don't know, eight, nine, ten of John's guitars being electronically tuned. I sat in the middle of them. And I just remember being in the circle and watching these electronic tuners, you know, put everything in perfect pitch. And it was just a really interesting process. So Chris comes down with a couple cheeseburgers he had left over. He says, here's your ticket. I'm sorry it didn't work out. Okay, fine. And as I'm hearing them sing up above me, literally on the stage, I'm thinking to myself, I got to talk to this guy, even though I didn't know why. So being the audacious young man I was at the time, I walked up on this stage while they're practicing. They all turn and look at me. And Chris comes over, like, you can't be up here. I said, listen, where are you guys going to be tomorrow night? He's we're, we're in Pittsburgh. I said, I'll just meet you there. And he said, oh, okay. He said, there's like 10 minutes after the show. Go backstage here, talk to so-and-so. Okay, fine. Fantastic concert for Catholic Charities of Boston. I think they raised like a quarter million dollars that night. And um, I go backstage and wait my turn. And John comes out and he's like, what are you doing here? Gives me a hug. Hey, how you doing? But what are you doing here? I said, I thought you would know. Not the best answer. And he looked at me cockeyed, and then he said, did you bring me something? And in that instant, I remember that in my jacket pocket, my leather coat, I had about eight or ten letters from kids that had, had written to me uh, about talks that I had given in various schools around Chicago about environmental awareness. And I didn't even know what the hell I was doing, but I did these talks. And so these kids, were, and they were just in there from me being at the schools. Oh, yeah, I got these letters. And I don't even know why I said that. And I gave him these letters, and he's looking at him. He's pouring over and pouring, and he gets this big grin on his face like he just got out of school early. And he looks at me and goes, do you have any idea what you're doing? I said, no, I don't. I don't even know why I'm here. And he puts his right hand on my left shoulder, and he looks me dead straight in the eye, and he says, do you know that your voice matters? There's a question put on me by him. And I did not know that answer. I never thought it mattered one way or the other. But the way he posed it to me, it was a question, but also a statement. He said, the coming years will prove me right, that your voice matters greatly in all things. Uh, okay. He says, put the letters in my bag. We'll be in touch. I gave him a hug. Off he went. I put the letters in his bag. I thought, oh, I delivered the mail, literally. And that was the end of it. 
about two months later, I get a phone call from the Windstar Foundation, John's think tank that he created with Tom Crum back in the 70s. They do these big symposiums every year. And uh, I don't remember the woman's name. She goes, but Mr. Denver brought your letters to the board and we're going to try and figure out a way to create environmental programs in schools based on what we do with the Windstar Connection program. I thought, fan effing tastic. Now I really, you know, I got it right. I did what I was supposed to do. Thought that was the end of it. It was not. So that was in 1991. So in the fall of 93, I was teaching at uh, my alma mater, Shures High School in Chicago, and I had a mailbox there, you know, so your mail comes in, mostly garbage. But anyway, there was this flyer one day from the Windstar Foundation saying that in 1994, in August, late August of 94, the ninth annual Choices for the Future Symposium was going to be held. It's called The Human Family. And when I got that flyer and I looked at it, something flipped. Can't tell you what it was, but it did. And I go to class. I'm covering different classes that day. I could not get my mind off this flyer, the human family, the human family, the human family. By the time I got home that afternoon, I sat out in the yard and literally wrote out a poem or lyrics called The Human Family in the backyard, like in 20 minutes. I'd never done anything like that in my life. So this is a full year before they were doing this event, basically. That whole summer of 1994, it was a roller coaster ride, up and down. I had this most overwhelming sense that I'm supposed to be there at this event. Now, I had been there a couple times before, but just as a participant, certainly not as a presenter, I hadn't done anything. I spoke at a couple schools. I wasn't on the radio. There was no such thing as TED Talks. I had not written a book. None of that. None of which I'm somewhat known for today was even in existence. And I just felt I'm supposed to be there. And my friend Ginny, who I know is listening to this podcast, is my witness. I would call her every three or four days ago. I can't shake this feeling. Something's going on. And all these little nuances popped in and back and forth and blah, blah, blah. And the bottom line comes down to two weeks before the event in 1994, I'm downstairs in the basement cleaning the cat box, you know, the sacred shifting of the shit. And um, the phone rings upstairs. And it was one of those, I need to answer this. It was like 10 o'clock in the morning. And I run upstairs and I answer the phone and it's somebody at Windstar and says, Mr. Denver would like to talk to you. Do you have time? This what? <laughs> so John gets on the phone and he says, hey, pal. He says, um, Dr. Mae Jemison had to cancel. She was supposed to speak in two weeks here at the event. She was the first female black astronaut in history and uh, she had to cancel. Would you take her place? Wait, wait, what? Again, what do you want me to do? It's one thing to go talk to 20 kids in a classroom. It's one, another thing to get in front of 5,000 people from around the world at the Aspen Music Tent for an international symposium. I said, sure, let me check my schedule. Okay, I'll be there. So I went from driving out at the time to them flying us first class there, and it was a big deal, and it, it was just over-the-top wonderful. But I also had to say something at some point, and so I created this talk called The Ripple Effect, and that Ripple Effect talk had three questions that was really important. It was, where have you been? Why are you here? And where are you going with all this that we're doing? The woman in front of me, who was the speaker in front of me, had three assistants and I mean, files up the wazoo. I don't recall her name. She was a, 
she was a like a biologist with the National Wildlife Federation or something. Anyways, high end stuff, and I'm sitting there with a piece of paper that I took out of the hotel the night before, with three questions on it. That was my 35 or 40 minute talk. And so when I get to the end of the talk, I did the human family poem, and it was a standing ovation. And kind of got it was like when Johnny Carson tells you to come over when you're done. So when uh, Rollin Smith, who was the MC, says, "Let's come on over, pull up a chair, let's talk." I'm like, "Oh, I must have done something right." So when that finished, I walked outside of the tent, and there had to be 150 people in line waiting to talk to me. I thought, "What is this? What's going on here?" And what was going on is that John had seen something in me I didn't see in myself, and he brought it out. He put me on stage. Put up or shut up. Here's the make or break point. And I can tell you that everything in my life, professionally especially, that has come out of uh, that experience still exists today. Right? So every time I get behind a microphone, I think of being on that stage. Every time I sit down to write, no matter what it is really, it's like this is something that was brought out in, in me because that human family thing kicked it open and it's never closed. Every single morning I walk into my studio, I look on the corner uh, of the wall here, and there's a big poster that John had given me uh, for the presentation that year in 1994. It's signed by him, and it's an image of tulips coming through the snow in the spring in the mountains. And it's indicative, of, I think, of life pushing forward and pushing through. So every morning I come in here, I think of him. I, I can't not. And so this is a bittersweet day because I also remember what it was like when I heard that he had died in that plane crash, what a difficult and challenging that day was for me and so many that loved him. Last year on the 25th anniversary of John's passing, I did a three-hour blowout with everybody from John Oates to Richard Kaufman to Ron Lemire to Connie Reeder. And then I grabbed a bunch of audio from an event that I did on the air when I was at Harpo. Uh, in 07, I pulled those, uh, you know, clips back and I wanted to really honor the guy on the 25th anniversary, but something else happened. There was a letting go of sorts after 25 years, you know, grief and loss has no time limit. There's no such thing as getting over anything. You just keep going through it over and over again at different levels of consciousness and awareness. At least that's my experience. So there was something that kind of left last year when I did that. Maybe it's the 25th year thing. I really don't know. And it was okay. Now, of course, I miss the guy. And who, you know, and as you would miss anybody who's made a profound difference in your life. But yet, I'm close to him because I'm doing what he reminded me I was capable of doing. And I think when you're doing the work and you're carrying on the work of someone who, who uh, gave their life to their work and, and you know, he didn't have to do I go back to that higher ground thing. He never had to do that. I mean, he'd already sold a bajillion albums, over 100 million albums worldwide. I mean, uh, he, but still, even with all that celebrity and success, television, movies, whatever, he was still going around the world reminding people that we can do better. And of all the things that I uh, think about when it comes to John, that's the thing. It kind of goes along with the Teddy Roosevelt, do what you can, where you are with what you have mantra. You know, so I believe every song that John sung was to get us to do something in some way, shape, or form. And I have great admiration for that. The work ethic he had was second to none. He was a world-class guitarist. His voice was incredible. You know, Hall of Fame songwriter, all those pieces. But what I saw was him continuing to do the work he came here to do, no matter what. 
before he was the best-selling artist in the world, during the time he was the best-selling artist in the world, and after that time had passed in the later years of his life. He never stopped. There's a lot of moment in that for me. So what I've done is I put a few songs together I thought you would enjoy. Uh, we're going to run a couple of these from the um, Harbor Lights concert, which was done in Boston, because that's where this all started for me. And I'll come back and explain a few more. Enjoy. Hi, gang. master back home Like an old friend who's tried and been true I had a vision of eagles and horses High on a ridge in a race with the wind Going higher and higher Faster and faster On eagles and horses I'm flying again The heavenly heights They know neither limit nor bound They're the guardian angels Of darkness and light They see all and hear every sound My spirit will never be broken Nor caught For the soul is a free-flying thing like an eagle that needs neither comfort nor thought To rise up on glorious wings yeah. I had a vision of eagles and horses High on a ridge in a race with the wind Going higher and higher, faster and faster On eagles and horses I'm flying again, flying again, I'm flying again. My body is merely the shell of my soul But the flesh must be given its due Like a pony that carries its rider back home Like an old friend who's tried and been true 
my spirit will never be broken or caught for the soul is a free flying thing like an eagle that needs neither comfort nor thought to rise up on glorious wings I had a vision of eagles and horses high on a ridge in a race with wind going higher and higher faster and faster on eagles and horses I'm flying again flying again flying again flying again, flying again. I'm flying Thank you very much. Good evening once again. Welcome to our little concert here tonight at Harbor Lights. He was born in the summer of his 27th year. Coming home to a place he'd never been before Left yesterday behind him You might say he was born again Might say he found a key for every door When he first came to the mountains His life was far away On the road, hanging by a song But the strings already broke and he doesn't really care Keep changing fast It don't last for long The Colorado Rocky Mountain High I've seen it rain and fire in the sky The shadow from the starlight Is softer than a lullaby Rocky Mountain High Rocky Mountain High He climbed Cathedral Mountain Saw silver clouds below Saw everything as far as you can see And they say that he got crazy once He tried to touch the sun And he lost a friend who kept his memory Now he walks in quiet solitude the forests and the streams Seeking grace In every step you take His side has turned inside Himself to try and understand The serenity Of a clear blue mountain lake Colorado Rocky Mountain High I've seen it rain and fire In the sky Listen to the casual reply Rocky Mountain High 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 Rocky
Rocky Mountain High Now's the life is full of wonder But his heart still knows some fear Of the simple thing he cannot comprehend Why they try to tear the mountains down To bring in a couple more More people, more scars upon the land Colorado, Rocky Mountain High I've seen it rain and fire in the sky I know he'd be a poor man If he never saw an evil fire Rocky Mountain High remember the first time I heard Rocky Mountain High I was 14 years old heard it on the radio and I could not believe that there was this guy singing about a place that was so different than where I was living at the time as where I was grow up in Chicago uh, I was about a block and a half from the Kennedy Expressway so it was always loud there there was more concrete than trees there was more steel than you know than uh, anything else around us that's just city living and here's this guy singing about a place with eagles I'm like what where's this at it was one of those songs of John's that got into me early and often. This next song, uh, so interesting to me. Last year, on the 25th anniversary of John's death, there was, of course, a lot of uh, media around all that. And one of the uh, big media outlets was CBS Sunday Morning that was going to do a special about that, you know, kind of a, a report on that. And uh, Mo Rocca, who does some great work with a little segment called Mobituaries, had reached out to Annie Denver, and Annie, in turn, reached out to me, been friends for a long time, and she was like, I don't know if I can do this. You know, it's been 25 years since John's death. Uh, to her credit, she has been a, uh, a stalwart steward of all his legacy and projects and music and things, and done some incredible work there. And one of the things that she created was the John Denver Sanctuary, sitting on the Roaring Fork River, just within the town limits of Aspen, but it's just a beautiful place nestled right as you're kind of going out of town and there are these huge boulders there and there John's lyrics to many of his songs are carved in the boulders and it's just a, a fantastic place and so they wanted to do this interview with her at the sanctuary and so Annie and I had gone back and forth maybe three four five conversations about what's best to do and how to do it and look she's not a media person never wanted to be but she has stepped into that the best way that she knows how which is as Annie does everything full on and I couldn't help but think of being back at the sanctuary with Annie 
in 2014, somewhere in there. You know, it's getting a little fuzzy after years, folks. In 2010, she had um, hosted a book launch party for me at Explore Books in Aspen when my book Every Moment Matters came out. And uh, it was a sensational event. Uh, sold out, standing room only. And it wasn't because of me. It's because Annie invited everybody that was there in town, basically. And what a fantastic time. And somewhere in the world, there are books with both our signatures in them. I think that's just a really interesting thing. So anyway, we have this common bond about going to the sanctuary a few times together. And the first time we were there, we were walking along the edge of the the pond that's there. And she stopped and she puts her hand on my, my chest. She goes, do you hear it? I said, do I hear what? She goes, do you hear John? She goes, just sit here for a minute. And what I heard was nature. That's what she was going for. And it is nature that came through his music. It is nature, as he said, that gave him his voice. And that sanctuary, when you go there, you can't not help but hear him. It's just really something. So anyway, we have these conversations back and forth about CBS and mobituaries. And I said, Annie, look, they're going to come and talk to you all day. And they're going to use about six minutes, if that. And you don't have to say anything you're not comfortable with. You can you know, agree to disagree, whatever you want. Tell them, here's what I don't want to talk about. Here's what I do. You'll handle it just fine. They also want to talk to Tommy Crum, who is John's best friend most of his life. And Tom's a little more seasoned than Annie. He's up, you know, he does books and presentations. So he's a little bit more used to that. So Talked her off the ledge a couple times. Uh, the uh, the mobituaries aired last year on the 25th anniversary of John's passing. It was a fantastic piece by Mo and his, his uh, production crew. And uh, Annie called me the day after. She says, well, I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> so did I. This is my favorite version of Annie's song. It was uh, performed in Russia in 1985. The brilliant... Roger the Immortal Nichols uh, built a rig so he could go with John to Russia and record the concerts. They had been there for private concerts, then they did public concerts. And so Roger was able to take his genius and shove it in a suitcase, basically, and record these songs. And they are, to my ear, the best recordings that John ever did out of his 30-plus albums. Uh, and to hear him in concert was a whole nother deal. But this is as close as it gets to being in the third row in Russia of all places in 1985.
Let me always be with you Come let me love you Come love me When John went to the Soviet Union in 1984 and 85, there was no cultural agreement between the Soviet Union and the United States. He did it on his own. I remember hearing that George Seltz, who I believe was the Secretary of State at the time, wasn't real happy with Mr. Denver extending the olive branch and going to sing to the communists. But John saw it differently. He saw this as what he was supposed to do with the gift he was given. 1992, he went to China. First Western artist to do mainland China was John Denver. Matter of fact, just jumping back to the Russia thing, um, because of John being there, there became a cultural agreement. And Billy Joel's uh, album in Russia never would have happened without John paving the way. And there was some conversation about, well, who do we have next? And he, John's like, well, how about Billy Joel? He'd be good. And there you go. The rest is history. Also, Russian is a difficult language. And the fact that he sang half the song in that just, uh, to me, added to the whole deal. He always said, as we all know, that music is a universal language. So I think that was proven right there. Going back to 1974, when I sat on Michelle's front porch on that summer evening, we had worked together at Dunkin' Donuts, and she invited me over to, to her house to listen to this guy. And it was the Back Home Again album. And there are all great songs in there, but there's this one song that when she dropped the needle on it, literally dropped the needle on the vinyl, it is something that has never left me since. It's become a prayer, a meditation, a mantra, and a reminder of life. I'll stand alone on some forgotten highway. Something that I can't believe 
something Nothing that ties me to something that might have been true yesterday. Tomorrow is over. Right now it seems to be more than enough to just be here today. I don't know what the future is holding in store. Don't know where I'm going. I'm not sure. The spirit that guides me, the light that shines for me. My life is worth the living. I don't need to see the end. Sweet, sweet surrender. Something that I can't believe in Looking for something that I'd like to do with my life There's nothing behind me Nothing that ties me to Something that might have been true yesterday Tomorrow is over Yes, and I don't know what the future is holding in store. Don't know where I'm going. I'm not sure where I've been. There's a spirit that guides me, light that shines for me.
Yeah, you know, uh, when you're 14, 15, or 16, somewhere in that in that time frame, how can those lyrics knock it into a young person and going, you know, there's a spirit that, that guides me and a light that shines for me? Come on. It worked. It still does. I mentioned a while back about this poem I wrote, The Human Family, in the backyard after a day of teaching when I got that flyer for Windstar. And after, I think it was the year I spoke there. I can't remember. I think it was. Um, God, the memory thing is just something else at some point. Anyway, uh, I gave John the lyrics. We were standing outside the tent in Aspen, and there was a lot of people around. I gave him these lyrics, and he looks. He goes, Human Family. That's like, what a great song title. I said, well, why don't you sing it, you know, record it. We can make a couple bucks here. And um, that never happened. However, a few years later, uh, a guy named Frank Delamar uh, and I crossed paths. And he, uh, I used to do this event called Songs in the Key of Life back in uh, Upper Michigan when I was living there. And Frank was one of my guests. It was like an evening of song and, and you know, spoken word. And I do the spoken word. I'm not singing. Uh, but I had some great artists come in like Juice Newton. Frank came in and Kathy Bolton and David Stoddard. And it was quite a lineup. And, and Tony Galbraith and uh, Kathy Murphy and just Winford Brown. Just fantastic. Anyway, I gave the lyrics to Frank. Probably handwritten at that point. I don't know. And uh, he went into his bathroom one day and recorded it. So you could basically say that I'm also a songwriter. I have one song to my credit. And even though this is off a YouTube video and the sound isn't pristine, uh, you kind of get the drift. So I'm really thankful that Frank did this. I thought he did a great job. So instead of me reciting the poem, you can hear Frank sing it. Hello again, and welcome back to the uh, recording facility. This is called The Human Family. Uh, the lyrics uh, were inspired by a poem by the name of Human Family, written by John St. Augustine. And uh, the music is... Uh, is my composition.
half bad I have not heard those lyrics or words in so long that I'm sitting here kind of amazed actually that that came out of me and that that Frank what a talent was able to take those and make it into a song that's just uh, (laughs) I wrote that a long time ago pretty interesting we're gonna wrap this up for uh for today I appreciate you spending the time with me and my pal John and I hope that you've enjoyed the music and uh, all the things that he stood for and you know one of the things that I guess really uh, confuses me to some degree. As I said early on in the show, his music to me was a call to action, uh, no matter what it might be. And I think people say, well, I wish we had more John Denvers in the world. And I don't think that's the point. I think the point is you're supposed to do something where you're at with what he was involving you to do or engaging you to do or maybe inviting you to do. I'm a prime example of that. I thought I was going to 
play football, become a high school football coach, and retire. Nothing wrong with that. Sometimes I wish I did that. But that simple conversation back in Boston at the Wang Center after a show where he asked me that question, do you know your voice matters, and made that statement at the same time, opened all this for me. And it's never closed. You know, I, I say this all the time. I've faltered many times, but I've never wavered. And that really is kind of my epitaph when I think about my professional life. And that comes from him. So while I think about him every day at some point, today is a, a day that, of remembering him. And, you know, I'm not as concerned about John Denver's cause of death and all that, but I'm more concerned about his cause in life. And that's what he was all about. And tomorrow's promise to none of us. So get about doing what you can today, where you are with what you have to be the change you wish to see in the world. It's really that simple. There's so much going on we can't do a thing about. But there's something you can do somewhere where you're at now, even today, in some small way, or even in a greater way. You know, I'm doing this podcast. People around the world are going to hear this. They'll sing and they'll feel better. But I also want to invite you to do something with that feeling, that you that you make a difference some way, somehow, uh, that you may not know you had were capable of. So it's a reminder that your voice matters too. I'm going to let John finish this off. This next song is called It's About Time. He wrote it uh, years ago in the 1980s, and every word of it is still true today, unfortunately. It's about time we kind of get our act together, don't you think, folks? I think so. Until next time, be well, safe travels. Thanks for listening. Keep the faith. There's a full moon over India and Gandhi lives again And who's to say you have to lose for someone else to win In the eyes of all the people the look is much the same For the first is just the last one when you play a deadly game It's about time we realize it We're all in this together it's about time we find out It's all of us or none It's about time we recognize it These changes in the weather It's about time, it's about changes And it's about time There's a light in the Vatican window For all the world to see And a voice cries in the wilderness Sometimes he speaks for me I suppose I love him most of all When he kneels to kiss the land With his lips upon our mother's breast He makes his strongest stand It's about time we start to see it The earth is our only home It's about time we start to face it We can't make it here on our own to listen to the voices in the wind it's about time it's about changes and it's about time there's a man who is my brother just don't know his name but I know his home and family because I know we feel the same 
And it hurts me when he's hungry and when his children cry. I too am a father and that little one is mine. It's about time we begin it to turn the world around. It's about time we start to make it the dream we've always known. It's about time we start to live it. changes and it's about time it's about peace and it's about plenty and it's about time it's about you and me together and it's about time thank you very very much Thank you. Thank you very much.